I think that uh, we used to have a very competitive ideological market, and now we don't. The more genuinely competitive a market is, the better it is in all ways. It's better for consumers. It's better for the pace of innovation. It's better for the political process, so on and so forth. So we, would you agree we agree on those principles? Absolutely. Okay. So let's try and find where we disagree. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we explore everything you wished you'd learn in Econ 101. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. You know, sometimes, Nick, I think uh, we may fall into the preaching to the choir trap on yes. Pitchfork Economics and that we have some ideas about how the economy does work and doesn't work. And then yes. we look for really smart, interesting people who generally agree with us. Yes. Uh, and occasionally in these conversations, we'll... We'll make a little uh, snide comment about the University of Chicago, the yeah. Chicago School, <laughs> because that's where, you know, Milton Friedman yeah. and the whole um, uh, neoclassical orthodox economics as we know it today. And, got, you know, in, in particular, de a deliberate attempt to uh, animate the neoliberal narrative, right. too. Yeah, absolutely. It, it comes out of the Chicago school. Yeah. So uh, we're going to take a, a little uh, diversion here and talk to an actual University of Chicago economist. That's right. Uh, Luigi uh, <laughs> Zingales is a professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, and um, he has been wavering a little well, bit. Well, <laughs> technically, he's a Chicago School economist, not in the sense that he's necessarily of the Chicago School, yeah. but that he teaches at the Chicago School. Yeah. I, th I think he has economic views, which are... I don't even what you would call it, more conservative than ours in than general. Ours, but he but has written persuasively about competition and about capitalism. And he's a, you know, he's a super smart and interesting guy. And it will be it will be fun to uh, compare and contrast our views with his. Right. He wrote this wonderful book called Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists in 2003. And uh, in 2012, he published uh, Capitalism for the People, Recapturing the Last Genius of American Prosperity. And and that was the book that brought him to my attention. That's at right. Least. I read that book, loved the title, loved some loved of the book. Yeah. Did not yeah. always agree. No, we didn't always agree. On, on his solutions. Still. But it shows at least it's he's a creative thinker, a, yeah. a free thinker when it comes to... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. at least examining the orthodoxies. Definitely. He's also, by the way, the co-host of a podcast called Capital Isn't. And you know, here on Pitchfork Economics, we're big fans of uh, economics podcasts. Exactly. Which people should listen to all the time. I am Luigi Zingales. I am a professor of finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. I'm a director of a center called uh, Stiegler Center, whose goal is to study how vested interests are subverting the competitive market economy. 
so uh, is it fair to describe you as a as a, an authentic Chicago school economist? Um, <laughs> no, because first of all, I don't know what a Chicago school is anymore, and then uh, I, I was told that I cannot represent the Chicago school, so I think that I'm my own kind of economist. I love it. Okay. <laughs> good well, for you. Well, good for you. That's good, because we usually use that term as a pejorative. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start. Uh, in your book, A Capitalism for the People, you make this really important distinction between pro-market and pro-business. Uh, if you could just explain the difference as simply as you can uh, to start with, that would be great. Sure. Uh, in a sense, uh, first of all, we hear these two terms uh, used interchangeably every day, especially in the political arena. And uh, I think they are very different because uh, businessmen and businesswomen love uh, competition and free markets when uh, they want to enter a new line of business. Uh, the moment they are in, they want to increase the barrier to entry in order to make more profits. And so they all of a sudden, their interest is to make markets less competitive, less functioning, to gain more profits. And I think that uh, this is not necessarily bad if that's done at an individual level, as long as we think about maintaining the system competitive overall. is is very bad when... Uh, as policymakers, we confuse the interests of uh, businessmen with the interest of the market itself and the community at large. I think this is a, a great point and uh, a distinction that is so important in understanding where policy went wrong. I've always phrased it slightly differently, which is confusing the narrow interests of a few capitalists with the broad interests of capitalism. The two things often have almost nothing to do with one another and, in fact, are often at odds. And yet these terms have been used interchangeably when, in fact, there's no profit to be made in a perfect market, is there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In, a sense, in the textbook definition of a perfectly competitive market, there are zero abnormal profits, which means uh, zero profits are above uh, a proper return to capital. But yes, in uh, there should be... Uh, zero profits. In reality, we know that uh, they're not. So let's get to why this distinction is important and why this, the impact that this confusion has had in, in leading us to the, the problems we have in American capitalism today. Where did this start and what has it wrought? I think that, uh, in my view, is uh, a deterioration that took place with the demise of uh, the Soviet Union and socialism and uh, any fear of a, a communist takeover. In, in the old days, not necessarily good, but in the old days where there was a, a very strong just acquisition between uh, capitalist and uh, socialist, if you want to make it simple, the capitalists were forced to present a better picture, better image and to think more broadly about uh, what is uh, good for, for society in general, not just for a narrow uh, set of uh, large business people. Once that uh, pressure disappeared and uh, it became cool, not only on the right-hand side of the political spectrum, but even the left-hand side of the political spectrum of uh, being businessmen and being entrepreneurial and, and making money, then... Uh, these two distinctions started to fade away. 
And I think that people started to use the two interchangeably. And uh, policymakers, both on the right and on the left, took uh, that being pro-business was a good thing. And I think that uh, that is uh, true to to this day. So we used to have, I guess, uh, a competitive ideological market, and now we don't. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, we used to have a very competitive ideological market, and and I think that uh, the competition was keep people uh, more honest. And this is uh, in uh, the the. To put in the context of the U.S. tension, I think in in the 60s or 70s, for the Democratic Party to be seen as too cozy with business would have been anathema. And uh, as a result, even the Republicans were forced to keep some distance. And uh, in the mid-80s, when the blue dog Democrats and uh, Clinton came around as a sort of a young leader in the party and then eventually won the election, I think that... uh, uh, what he was uh, uh, basically doing, he started to compete for who was more friendly to business. And then was a really race to the bottom. I think that that diagnosis of where we went wrong, a lot of it rings true. Yeah, I ti- think that the timing's a little off because yeah. you, you see the, the shift happening really starting in the mid 70s. Yeah. Not with the collapse of the Soviet Union. It certainly accelerates after yeah, that. Yeah, and I think it has to be true, certainly. I mean, as a progressive capitalist, you know, I'm a huge believer in markets and capitalism and believe it's the best social technology ever invented to create prosperity in human societies. But the flavor of capitalism that we accept um, right. is the question at hand. And the neoliberal order that established the policies that we have today was conceived um, for good reason, which is that the opposing ideology, uh, which was communism and Stalinism and some really horrible things, right? Like that, you know, that was conceived for good reason. As, but as a counter narrative. I would submit to you that there were a bunch of ideas that came out of the, the economics profession, a lot of it from Chicago, that led people in both political parties to a policy framework that definitely ended up concentrating wealth and making our markets effectively less competitive. Uh, The idea that the only purpose of the corporation was to enrich shareholders, and by so doing, we maximized benefits to everybody, being sort of the canonical example of that. Don't you think that the economics profession has some responsibility here in both birthing and then propagating these ideas? Certainly, some of the uh, ideas generated in the economic profession had an impact, and some of that may have uh, a negative impact. But uh, I think that what was remarkable was how these ideas were accepted, not only, if you want, in the right-hand side of the political spectrum, but on the left-hand side. I think that everybody talks about uh, the the Chicago School of Antitrust, which is, of course, uh, important and influential. But uh, the irony is that not only one of the key uh, exponents of this school was uh, Robert Bork, and while he was trained at Chicago, he was a Yale professor and, and exercised his influence at, at Yale more than in Chicago. But more importantly, there were people like uh, Arida and uh, Turner that were at Harvard, and with this, they had a very similar approach, and uh, they made this mainstream, in a sense, Borg, for many years, 
was a pariah in a profession. Remember, he did not make it to the Supreme Court. So it's hard to say that he was kind of this mainstream guy. The mainstream guy were Turner and Arida, uh, who, by the way, were consulting at the time for IBM and were pushing the point that uh, uh, there is no monopoly and uh, if it exists, it's good for everybody and so on and so forth. So I think that the real turning point is not that there was there were some conservatives that were pushing this line. The point is, that on the other hand, there was nobody opposing it. And it became completely dominant and became normal that uh, the Secretary of State for Clinton became Robert Rubin. And uh, is like uh, the most normal thing that the head of Goldman Sachs is uh, a, a leading Democrat. Yes, absolutely. And so, I, I, I think you're dead right. The remarkable thing is that these ideas, we think of them as conservative political ideas today, but they may not have been birthed as conservative no, I mean, political ideas. Well, they've been unchallenged for so long. Yeah, but they completely dominated the policy thinking on both the right and the left. And that's why we're in the box that we're in. So, Professor Zangales, you, you welcome Bernie Sanders onto the scene then, since he, he adds to... Uh, the, the ideological diversity and uh, competition here. That's good for the nation to have him there, right? I think it's good for him to provoke, yes. I don't uh, agree with his, uh, most of his ideas, but I think it is a useful challenge to the system. And more importantly, he's interpreting a lot of dissatisfaction that is out uh, there in America and, by the way, in the Western world. Because what is interesting, in, in uh, we tend to, in America to interpret everything uh, as a specific to America. But if you look around the world, many of the movements that we have seen here have taken place somewhere else. In a sense, if you think about Tony Blair, he was a Labour Party uh, leader, but uh, he was very similar to Clinton in his approach to business. And what is the result is now they have Corbyn that makes uh, Sanders look like a moderate. Yes, and absolutely. Then, uh, and then look at uh, in Germany, you had the leader of the SPD, the Social Democratic Party, uh, Schroeder, that after he stepped down, he became chairman of Gazprom. For Christ's sake, yeah. not only chairman <laughs> of a large oil company, but of a, of a Russian oil company, yeah. of a country that is a threat to the Western world. And this is, is unbelievable. Yes. Here's the really interesting thing that I want to sort of zoom in on is I, I think that you and we are in violent agreement about certain things. I but think the, we, the problem, certainly it, it, on the, the, yeah, the analysis. That's right. And that we have made this terrible mistake of confusing what's good for markets and capitalism generally with what's good for business people and businesses specifically. I think that we're in complete agreement with that. And that the more genuinely competitive a market is, the better it is in all ways. It's better for consumers. It's better for the pace of innovation. It's better for the political process, so on and so forth. So we would you agree we agree on those principles? Absolutely. Okay. So let's try and find where we disagree, uh, which I think will be more interesting. So let's, why don't we try and punch through some of the most ambitious proposals of Democrats running for president today, a Goldie raised Bernie Sanders. But right. if there are things that you think are egregious 
and not good for markets and capitalism. Why don't we try and talk about those things? Because well, I think could, that'll be interesting. Yeah, we could start with the biggie, which is Medicare for all. Yeah. Uh, healthcare reform. Yeah. You had a very different proposal in your book. Yeah. Talk us through why you think Medicare for all isn't good. So uh, there are two points of view. One is what is the cost overall of the system? And uh, I think that uh, the, the fear is that having a system that uh, protects everybody combined with uh, the pressure to extend uh, treatment at end of life is uh, making room for a disaster in America. And in part that already doesn't work very well is Medicare, right? Because uh, in this country, we have uh, a private system for the more healthy part of the market when people are young, and then we socialize the losses when people are old and sick. Right. The ultimate example is when it comes to, for example, people uh, in dialysis that are extremely expensive. They are not part of the private system. So if, if you have a kidney failure, you are immediately pushed into Medicare. It's one of the few cases in which you can be, enter Medicare before 65. So the system is privatized profits and socialized losses, basically. That's, uh, that's the system as it is. Now, can we have a, a more uh, market-oriented a, a functioning system? I think that uh, Switzerland seems to have achieved that. But uh, i becoming more and more uh, disillusioned about the possibility of moving toward that system. So I think that uh, having a minimum level of care for everybody, I think is probably the, the way to go. The question is, what do you define minimum and uh, how expensive this is going to be? I know that book was written in uh, 2012, so it's been... It's been a few years. As I remember, you basically advocated for health savings accounts, not for providing some sort of minimum level of universal care. Have, have you moved on this issue? I, I'm not so sure that I would describe my position back and necessarily as just having savings account. I thought it was useful to create, create incentives to use uh, medicine in a more effective way. But yes, I, I have... Uh, slowly come to the conclusion that, first of all, it's very hard not to provide a lower bound for everybody. I come from uh, not only a country, a continent that uh, has offered this to everybody and, and has become almost like a human right. So I think it's very hard that the, one of the richest countries in the world does not offer that to its citizen in some form or another. Here's the thing, is that that continent somehow has managed to provide health care to every citizen and provides it at approximately someplace between 45 and 60% per citizen uh, of the cost per citizen that the United States provides healthcare with outcomes which are equal to or better than ours. And every single one of those countries has found a different way of doing this, but none of them use our system, which is this ridiculous quasi-private system, right, which largely amounts to the world's largest price-fixing scheme, right? Which is what the American healthcare system is. And so to say that we can't afford Medicare for all, which would be like imposing the Canadian system or the British system on the country, which delivers 
better health care at half the price seems disingenuous. I mean, put aside the politics of it and the difficulty of pushing it through. It's quite clear that if we did have the British system or the Canadian system or the Singaporean system or uh, the French system, 100% of Americans would have health care. Collectively, we'd spend about half as much per citizen and we'd get about the same outcomes. It seems like the market has failed dramatically uh, when it comes to health care and we have to acknowledge that. Yeah, we do acknowledge that, but we also acknowledge that it's not really a free market. In a sense, uh, the fact that uh, we cannot reimport the very insulin that is produced here and is sold in Canada at a third of the price cannot be reimported back. This is no market. No, this is a, it's a price a, fixing a, a, scheme. A, <laughs> it's a price fixing scheme. Okay, yeah. We agree on that. Yeah. So, yeah. so that okay. that actually is a great segue into another topic, which is uh, well, power political power, lobbying reform, which you talk about a lot in the book. A lot of the reason, the reasons why we can't import that insulin, uh, why we can't negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies on prices is because the pharmaceutical industry successfully lobbied Congress to prevent that. So I guess first, why is it important to reduce the power, the political power of corporations? And second, uh, how do we do that? Let me correct you just a, a tiny bit because it's even worse than you described because the reason why we still have that ban on reimportation is that it was like a Faustian pact between the Obama administration and the pharmaceutical industry in which the Obama administration traded the support for Obamacare with the pharmaceutical industry in exchange for that. And uh, they said this is a, a lesser evil but uh, they went ahead with that. So it's not just that they particularly lobby Congress, it's that uh, they are so influential in blocking any change that even if you are well-intentioned, and we, we should give uh, credit uh, to, to Obama to be well-intentioned, if you're well-intentioned, at the, at the end of the day, you have to compromise in order to get something done. And so I think that that's part of, uh, of the problem the reason why in this country we don't have some form of universal health care is because the entrenched power of the incumbents was uh, very strong. And it is, says Truman proposed a, some form of universal health care in, in 48. And uh, the American Medical Association lobby and advertise and uh, scare everybody against that to the point that uh, it did not get passed. Punch through the policy proposals made by Democrats running for president that strike you as counterproductive and bad for the economy. I am a, a kind of fiscal conservative, so I would like to see the numbers of uh, how you do this transition from the current system to the next one. I agree with you that uh, all the other countries succeeded in having a lower cost uh, of healthcare, and uh, one of the things that uh, um, actually uh, pushed me to to uh, come to more in the direction of universal healthcare is precisely see how increases over time of uh, the cost of healthcare in America seems to produce less of an increase in life expectancy. Uh, than in most other countries. It's not only that the level, because the fact that uh, 
the, the way I like to, to say the fact that in Portugal or Italy people live longer might be due to the fact that they drink uh, good uh, red wine and they eat olive oil and they don't shoot each other. So yes. I think that uh, those <laughs> things are, have, yeah. have that, not, that, nothing to do with, with, with health care. Yeah. Uh, uh, that, that's the Mediterranean diet. Red wine, yes. olive oil, and not shooting not each shooting other. Not shooting one another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, in addition to that, you see that over time, uh, every dollar spent more in, in uh, uh, medical care in, in Italy or Portugal, which are not model of efficiency, by the way. I'm not yeah. u- using <laughs> Switzerland or, or Sweden. Uh, it seems to have a bigger improvement in life expectancy in those countries than in the United States. So I think that uh, th- there are enormous amount of inefficiencies. The problem is that uh, moving from here to there is quite complicated, especially because People want to be promised to retain what they have today. And I think that uh, introducing universal health care will bring some form of redistribution. And uh, there will be a lot of tension. The fear that I have is that the way you tend to uh, resolve those tensions is to just pay the hell out of it. It's a bit like uh, Obamacare was introduced with a trade-off in which you kind of... uh, cut down some of the cost of healthcare in exchange for expanding the, uh, the coverage. Uh, but pretty quickly, uh, the cost reduction got eaten away, especially over time. And, uh, and then you have only the bill. So I think that uh, I'm concerned about uh, uh, spending and uh, it keeps spending uh, at, at a current rate, especially in a world in which uh, uh, demographic increase seems to slow down, and also the, our willingness to import people through immigration seems to be dramatically reduced. So the, the combination of these two factors, I think, should make us uh, uh, careful about uh, expanding uh, the debt uh, to the extreme. And and I come from a country that is struggling with a burden of a debt that finds it difficult to sustain and see the, the negative consequences of this are, are very large. So that's where maybe I'm uh, different. I'm more fiscally conservative than uh, many of the uh, proposals uh, out there by the Democrats. Speaking of expensive things, uh, the Green New Deal, can we afford that? What it means uh, in terms of numbers and what it means in terms of uh, allocation of money. What I'm concerned is about a lot of government money uh, handed out fast to friends and family. This has been uh, uh, generally what a lot of these government programs are about, and these are kind of uh, very dangerous. If you are saying we want to tax gasoline more in favor of uh, uh, reducing some taxes on alternatives uh, or even uh, maybe create some small economic incentives for alternatives, I think that uh, this is great. If you are talking about uh, doing some infrastructure investment to reduce the consumption of uh, gasoline and uh, in general CO2 emission, I think this is great. If you're talking about uh, trying to close down, I know this will not make me very popular in West Virginia, but thank God I don't run for office, but close down some coal plants. I think this would be fantastic. I think that uh, uh, coal is one of the most pollutant uh, fuel we have, and we should try to cut it down as fast as possible. 
And so maybe dedicate some money to keep it in the ground and pay for closing down those plants might be a good way to, to use the money. But uh, I'm afraid that uh, large quantity of money allocated uh, uh, that need to be allocated fast uh, might lead to an enormous amount of waste. This year, it's the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon. And when Kennedy, I think it was 1962, was when he proposed going by the end of the decade. And they did it by 1969. You know, people use that moonshot analogy. If we made a commitment by the end of the decade, the next decade, to shift our electrical grid to renewables at an enormous federal expense, could we do that, given the the potential climate disaster that's coming? It's a very good question. I... You know, the thing that uh, surprises me is to the extent in which uh, uh, the push to go on the moon did not lead to uh, fat contracts to contractors, but was done in an expensive way, certainly, but not in a way that was corrupt and wasteful. I think that uh, the NASA ran a pretty tight operation and uh, with a really big, big push. I'm afraid that uh, we don't have the institutions to do that anymore. I always uh, compare uh, Sweden with uh, Italy, and they say uh, I'm much more willing to be for government intervention in Sweden because I know that the government intervention in Sweden will be done relatively well and relatively impartially and with relatively little waste. I think that uh, asking for government intervention in Italy is masochistic because most of the money is wasted. What do you think about wealth taxes? Senator Warren and Senator uh, Sanders have proposed them. I'm not ideologically opposed to wealth taxes. I think that uh, it, it could be an interesting way to rebalance uh, the burden of taxes. And in particular, it could be a good way to avoid a lot of tax illusion. I have my own version of wealth tax, which is the following. Imagine you take uh, Senator Warren wealth tax, but you say that if you can prove that you have paid all your taxes on the income at the level of your wealth, uh, then that's discounted from your wealth tax. But uh, if you cannot, because you use all the various loopholes and et cetera, blah, 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 then you pay your wealth tax according to the, to the Warren plan. Uh, so it's sort so of then like AMT. Yes, a massive AMT for super rich people. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. you're either paying 40% on all your income or there's a wealth tax. Yeah. The dangerous part, in my view, is the, the slippery slope. In a sense, I think that uh, I don't feel particularly pain for the billionaires who impose the tax. But of course, uh, where do you stop in that, in that process? And uh, is, uh, once you start to go down, then uh, there are many, many more people that uh, are affected more and so on and so, so, on, so forth. So I think that people are, in my view, afraid of once you introduce a principle where you stop. And also the double whamming. If you are paying fully your tax, your income taxes at that level, you're paying a lot of money, and and then sort of uh, you have this double whamming. So I think that having this uh, mega alternative minimum tax is is a good idea. Where do you come out on things like free college or uh, you know student some, loan forgiveness? Student loan forgiveness. Um, How about student loan forgiveness? I'm very much against the generalized uh, student loan forgiveness because uh, it, I don't understand why you want to uh, target 
a uh, gift only to a few people. Uh, in a sense, if you are willing to give a gift, why don't you give it to everybody? It is an exposed gift and uh, is not particularly, I think, well designed. I think that having an expansion in uh, uh, state schools that can provide uh, college at a cheaper rate is a great idea. Cracking down on for-profit colleges that really take advantage of uh, many students by uh, having them accumulate a large amount of uh, debt with uh, not a lot of value added. I think that uh, in part that the problem is that uh, many young students are confronted with the proposition of people saying having education is uh, priceless and, and here is the loan and you cannot fail. And uh, the truth is, it's not true. I think that the truth is that uh, a lot of uh, college tuition is uh, not worth it, at least for a number of people, and, uh, and might be excessive. So I think that uh, giving free tuition uh, exposed or, or, or for giving loans exposed creates uh, terrible incentives, including for colleges that need more competition to, to, to reduce their tuition. So I think that uh, is the, the wrong uh, recipe, even if justified by a lot of good reasons. And honestly, I think that uh, the, the biggest problem in America, in my view, is that the high school does not prepare most uh, students enough. If uh, a lot of the job that uh, people do in, uh, in college were to be done in high school, collectively as a nation, will save an enormous amount of money. In your book, you make the case for school vouchers to address uh, failing public schools. Do you still support that? Yeah, I think that uh, they are a potentially very good solution. In the book, I explicitly said, and I think that this part should be expanded, to make that vouchers contingent on uh, how difficult it is for those students to uh, find the right school or overcome some natural disadvantage. So if I am a recent immigrant with uh, not a very good uh, uh, background, I don't know what the good schools are, etc. I am a, a relatively more difficult student to train, and so the voucher I receive should be more valuable so that uh, competition uh, 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 among schools will generate uh, more of an interest to hire me or have me as a student uh, to compensate uh, the, the bigger challenge. How much of the problem in our uh, public schools is the current funding mechanism where it's largely based on local property taxes in most of the country? I mean, I, I grew up uh, in the suburbs just across the city line outside of Philadelphia in an affluent district where we did then and they still today spend twice as much per kid than they do in the Philadelphia school district, where the needs are much higher, quite frankly, than where I grew up. There are great school districts throughout the country, and they tend to be well-funded. Could we fix this just by through more equitable funding? I completely agree. I think that the, this, the funding of uh, public schools in the United States is one of the most crazy things of the U.S. system. And I'm sorry to say, I think there is a, a very big sort of a racial segregation mm -hmm. element behind it. And, and I think that uh, uh, I see the voucher system as maybe the easiest way to go around that. 
Uh, and, uh, and I think that uh, we need to change that system because it's tearing the country apart. And I don't know what is the easiest way to go at it, but uh, it's not going to be easy because uh, in a lot of uh, suburbs, there are people defending uh, their privilege and their separation with uh, all their strength. So I, but I completely agree that we need to, uh, to fix that problem. And I think that actually the voucher system is not a bad idea in, in, in that direction. My problem with vouchers has always been that it seems inconceivable to me that the voucher amount will ever equal the amount of money that you actually need. I mean, I use as, for example, my own children, uh, I send to a private school that costs on the order of $40,000 per year per child. Public school kids in my state. This get, is in Seattle? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I thought that only New York had those fees. No, no, no. Well, in Nick's York, in a different it, class. No, so. no, no, no. That's not true. That's not true. That's <laughs> no, not true. Right. That's not true. All of the private schools in Seattle cost between thirty-five dollars and $40,000 a year. They just do. Well, cheaper right? than childcare. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, they're all priced approximately the same. Right. And then, it, you know, like you pay tuition and then you're right. supposed to donate too. Put that aside. <laughs> right? Where I, where I, but whereas in, in, in the public schools, I think the typical kid gets about $13,000 yeah. a year. And I find it inconceivable that we can solve this problem of higher need by simply vouchering a third of what it costs to educate my children to everybody right. else, right? Like I'd be all for school vouchers if the voucher amount equaled the price that it costs to get into the best private school in the state. <laughs> because then you would know that everybody was had available to them the, the amount of resources equal to the best system, right? Uh, or at least the, the system that the market says yeah. is the best system. But of system. course, not every school can be the best school. Not every teacher can be the best teacher. No, not but every... at $35,000 per, you can be pretty sure that you get a pretty good outcome. Because look, the market has landed on a number in a place like right. Seattle. In fact, the market has landed on the same number in every major city in the and, country. And in fact, if you look at the at the... The way in Seattle, in, in, in Washington, actually, we do it better. About 75% yeah. of the funding comes from the state. It's 25%, not quite as unequal. Yeah. 25% from local property taxes, and the state caps how much the districts yeah. can raise locally. But it doesn't cap how much the PTSAs can raise. Yeah. And what you, you find in elementary schools in the Seattle area is that the PTSAs are raising 1200 the, the wealthiest schools are raising $1,200, $1,500 more a year per student. Yes. And in the poorer schools, they raise nothing. Yeah. So if that 1500 is being raised on Mercer Island or, uh, or you know, Stevens yeah. Elementary or wherever, that tells you the market has set that price that we need an extra $1,500 per student. At a minimum. <laughs> At yeah. a minimum. At a minimum. For the, for the rich kids who don't have any special needs. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Anyway, I, I, so I, I want your thoughts on one more thing, Luigi, which is uh, shareholder value maximization, you know, the, uh, uh, shareholder capitalism and the, and the emerging notion uh, that we need a new definition or a new way of constraining uh, the uh, 
uh, capitalism and a new way to think about what the responsibility of executives is. Do you, do you have thoughts on that? Have you thought that through? Yes, I actually have a lot of thoughts. I might disappoint you here, but uh, my views are uh, kind of uh, at odds with uh, both the mainstream and uh, the mainest alternative in the sense that uh, I l- let me start from uh, from the beginning. I think that uh, uh, in in a competitive market system, so that's a big uh, if because uh, today a lot of sectors are not very competitive. But in a competitive market system. Uh, Workers and uh, uh, customers have uh, freedom of choice. So they don't like uh, the way uh, you're treated. You go somewhere else. You don't like the way the product uh, looks like or is is charged. I go somewhere else. The only people that don't have this choice are the shareholders because it's true that I can sell uh, my share, but... Uh, when I sell, I pay, uh, I receive what uh, the value of that share is, which is affected by the decision that the, uh, the company is make, making. So imagine that uh, um, I make a decision, and, and this case is not uh, an hypothetical because it's actually a, a real case that was de- debated in court. Imagine that I am Craigslist, and I decide that I, my goal is to give a service to all Americans and not to make profits. If I am a shareholder of Craigslist, maybe a minority shareholder of Craigslist, uh, I pay with my profits, or lack of thereof, uh, a service that is provided to everybody else. Um, if I'm not paying enough as an employee at Craigslist, I can leave. But if I'm not paying enough as an investor in Craigslist, I cannot leave because if I leave, I receive the price that reflects the fact that profits are much, much lower because Craig decided, Craig Newman decided to run the company a particular way. And so I think the shareholders have the right to be represented because if uh, they uh, are not uh, represented, uh, they can be taxed without representation. It says business decision to forgive profits in exchange for a greater goods are a form of political decision whose burden is paid by the shareholders. And so while I do believe that companies can and sometimes uh, should have greater objectives than just that profits, I think that who should establish those objectives are the ones who end up paying for it, i.e. the shareholders. So this is not the management, is not uh, uh, society at large, but the shareholders are the ones who pay the, the, the cost. But it's, it's simply not true that shareholders can't leave. You can sell at any time. I told you, you can sell, but you pay the cost. It's like saying you're, you're not taxed because you can leave. Okay, but as a worker, yeah. you also pay if you leave, right? right? You take enormous physical and personal and economic risk you, if you, you leave. You, you and, lose pay when you're in between jobs. Yeah. You might have to to take advantage of a better offer. You might have to pick up and move your family yeah, elsewhere. I mean, capital is more liquid than... Uh, labor is in this case and capital you're right capital is very li- liquid exante before you sink in but once i've invested my money in uh, let's say craigslist i cannot get out of it without paying a deep a deep cost if craigslist is mismanaged on the other hand think about uh, 
the, uh, the computer scientists who work for Craigslist, they can uh, walk on the other side of the road and get a better job. Yeah, so they're well, very But liquid. I can do the same thing. I can take my money out of Craigslist. I can sell and invest it. In one day. It, buy some other yeah. stuff in one second. Yeah. I can buy some other stock that I think will do better. Yeah. So I acknowledge that shareholders are an important stakeholder in a capitalist enterprise and should be represented. I think the question is, we have built a, an economic system where shareholders are the only stakeholders that are represented. Well, that, or are you saying, Luigi, that uh, that under current laws and rules, the the shareholders themselves don't actually have much voting power in terms of determining how the company is run? I definitely say that, but uh, I also want to point out that uh, the the fact that uh, today most corporations are for profits is not something that is imposed by law, is imposed by free choice. Today in particular, it's possible to create a benefits corporation where you put other objective in line and nothing prevents a, a new company to have uh, a statute that say that uh, workers should be represented on the board. They just choose not to do that. Yeah. And, and why they choose not to do that is probably because it's not very efficient to do that. Otherwise, uh, they would. No, I mean, it has nothing to do with efficiency. It has to do with profit. You don't want workers represented on your board because if they if they were represented on your board, you might have to pay them more. And if you have to pay them more, then you get to pay yourself less. That has nothing to do with efficiency. That has to do with power and profit, right? It's not Wait a more second. efficient. If, if we are two start, no, no, if we are two starting organizations, yeah. And we know that uh, I'm able to attract better workers at a lower compensation because I promise more in the future if I give them voting rights. And so if this is a better organization, again, in a competitive market, this form of organization should prevail. We know that in certain sectors, take the university sector, for example, cooperatives work pretty well because most universities are kind of not legally, but de facto, some cooperative run by faculty. And, uh, and we have entry of for-profit corporation. They have not done particularly well in, in, in this, this scheme. So we do have example of uh, worker-owned cooperatives. Think about uh, law firms. In law firms, we have a similar situation in which a group of uh, workers, their partners, who have vote, voting rights. I guess the thing is, is that, you know, a corporation is not a product of free choice. A, pr- a corporation is... Uh, the product of politics, right? Like civil society grants corporations limited liability in exchange for generating benefits to the society. You could just as easily say that it should be legal for corporations to dump any pollutant in the rivers because the people who live in the community can move and the shareholders can't get out if they don't get to dump the pollutants, right? Like, it's the same. No, it's no, the no, same. No, 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 no. But no, no. it's the same. I, I no, no, no. I completely, no, this, no, no. It's, no, no, it's not the same. I, I think that externalities should be regulated and I'm Poverty is an externality. Like, if I'm paying my workers so little that they can't survive without public assistance, I have generated an externality. If I'm paying my workers so little 
that they need to have three jobs in order to survive and therefore can't supervise their children, can't help them with homework, I'm creating an externality. If I'm paying my workers so little that they live in despair and take up drugs to make up the difference, I'm creating an externality. Like there are all sorts of externalities that are created by giving corporations the power to exploit people. First of all, uh, the power to exploit arises only in a world where there is not enough competition. So uh, maybe we fix the problem of competition to begin with, which exists. But second, if the problem is too low a wage, the easiest way to fix it is with minimum wage. It's not obvious why uh, you want to give power to employees to obtain that, that result. The point is there is nothing that prevents uh, labor to hire capital rather than capital to hire labor. In many situations, we see this is the case. And, and I give you the university to some extent in, in that as an example. So why we want to upset this expose in the sense uh, if you want to say that once a, a corporation is successful then we should tax that corporation and we distribute money to its to its uh, uh, workers okay but it's a form of taxation i i don't know why you don't accept the fact that uh, th there are different forms of organization and there is an increasing number by the way of of companies that set themselves up as cooperative or uh, set themselves uh, themselves up as a benefit corporation so people are paying attention but uh, even the most uh, aggressive uh, um, and liberal and progressive uh, startup firms in the silicon valley they tend to set themselves up as for-profit corporation. Yeah. And, and that means something, right? Is, is why? Because they need to attract capital, and that, that capital will come only under certain conditions. And because we're in a competitive market, if they could provide alternatives, they would. But the dominant form to attract that capital is to give that capital voting rights. You know what? I'm I'm going to need to cut off this. Oh, we, come on. We, we've taken you way too long. <laughs> already so so maybe we're going to have to uh, have you back again and and have a more focused argument between the yeah between you and but Nick. this is yeah i think this is the nub of the issue is how you conceptualize the different the role of the different stakeholders in society and how we call certain things standards and other things yeah. tax how we think about what efficiency is or and I, and I would just respectfully push back on that i i don't think it exists i i think that efficiency is a you know like a market is a complex adaptive ecology uh and those systems aren't efficient they can be effective if they're well structured and i yeah, think mar that's markets are incredibly inefficient yeah my god they're wasteful yeah uh and the question is how do we structure those uh, uh, structure those systems. Of course, they are the wasteful. The, the question is, what what is the alternative? Right. Well, yeah. we're, no, we're, we're with you. This is this yeah. is the best. Uh, the market the market works better than, than any alternative. The question uh, is, how do we make it the yeah. most effective mechanism for generating uh, broad based prosperity and stable societies? Right. And but that's so the, that's the question. Before we let you go, just we want to ask the standard question. We ask everybody at the end. Why do you do this work? Because I love it. What do you love about it? Honestly, 
I think that the study of economics is a study of how to improve people's lives, uh, at least from an economic point of view. Of course, there are many dimensions of people's lives, but I think that this is one and is very important. And uh, being able to study how to, to do it is extremely rewarding. You have stated the only normative assertion uh, we make in uh, our economic analysis, that the purpose of economics is to improve people's lives. Yep. So we're with you 100% on that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us. It was lovely, and, yeah. and I hope we'll have uh, other chances. If you're ever coming to town, please let us know. It would be so much fun to have you in the office, and if not doing a podcast, just chat generally about political economy issues. Anyway, thank you uh, okay. so much. L looking forward. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye-bye. So, Goldie, the most interesting thing about that conversation with Luigi was that he had come farther towards us than I had expected. Do right. you agree with that? Yeah. So, interestingly, um, I hadn't realized when I read when I read his book, uh, Capitalism for the People, that it was from 2012, and there were some things in there, like on healthcare, where the his big solution was health savings accounts yeah. and you know i was expecting to kind of force him to defend that but he didn't he's right. kind of he's looked at the results since then over the past seven years and he's come around to the idea that we need some to guarantee some yeah. sort of minimal level yeah. of government provided health care yeah and we served him up what, what i thought were going to be all these softballs on the economic proposals coming out of the Democratic primary. And I thought he would have been more harshly critical of right. those ideas. And he wasn't, which honestly surprised the heck out of me. I thought uh, he was going to really hate them and forcefully articulate why they were bad ideas, or a bunch of them were bad ideas, and he did not. And at the risk of sounding self-congratulatory, I, <laughs> I, I, I think, at least I would like to believe that that's because smart people in the economics profession are moving from these rigid orthodoxies on the right to more rational views about the role of government in managing market economies and are beginning to recognize that a lot of the fundamental assumptions that they had used before just turn out not to be true. Right. You know, when you wrote that Pitchforks piece back in 2014, yeah. 2014, yeah. Uh, this was in the midst of the $15 battle. We yeah. just passed $15 in Seattle and, uh, you know, it was roundly criticized, even right. by some of our allies is right. going too far too fast. A lot has changed right. since then. And one of the big things that's changed is, well, we've had things like $15 and none of the bad stuff happened. That's right. And uh, where we haven't done things like this, inequality has gotten worse. And it's become clear that a lot of the orthodoxies that people just took for granted as recently as five years ago aren't working out. Right, exactly. And I do think that because it's not just that the empirical evidence has mounted that these orthodoxies weren't true, there has been, a, a, I think, a pretty robust, organized pushback against the narratives, too. Right, there's a new 
uh, theoretical uh, understanding, new theoretical models that are being put right. together where we actually are beginning to have alternatives. You know, in our conversation uh, with Luigi, he talked about at the time uh, neoliberalism uh, really just took hold of both parties. It's because there there wasn't any alternative explanation, That's right. and now we've been developing and yeah. uh, really, you know, uh, building this new narrative around yeah. these alternative ideas. Right. And you know, you have to give you know, some some economists like like Luigi credit for. Uh, being willing to question their yeah. own orthodoxy yeah. and, and coming around. And I'd love to see all of the Chicago school. Yeah, exactly. You are welcome. We yeah. are a big tent here yeah. on the heterodox side yeah. of yeah. economics. Exactly. And we welcome you all to question all of your core values and models and uh, uh, come to us with an open mind. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and the thing about these orthodoxies, in fairness to these folks, were that they were sort of like water to fishes. In other words, you you don't even know it's there, really. Right. They're so, the, you know, the orthodox uh, assumptions about human behavior and the dynamics of human social systems were just so embedded in people's both consciousness and subconscious that you just, you didn't even uh, stop to question them. And, and it has been only the last, uh, really, honestly, I think five, six, seven years when people have really begun to start to take a harder look at this stuff. Okay, so the summary of this is uh, Professor Zingales uh, teaches at the Chicago School. I'm not really an enemy. No. No. Class traitor. <laughs> <laughs> like me. Yeah, interesting conversation, though, and a great guy. So I don't know how to say it in Latin, but on next week's episode, tune in and we'll talk about Economic Woman. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.